This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website, www.anchorchurch.com.au. Amen and amen. How are we guys? Welcome. My name's Arnaldo. I'm lead pastor over at Anchor Southwest. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, under unfortunate circumstances with Matt being unwell, but I want to welcome you all here, uh, those who are catching in online as well. And I was here last week, so you're going to get tired of me, you're going to see me again next week, uh, but it's going to be great. It's actually great to be back here uh, with y'all. Um, and we're continuing this series here in the book of Ephesians, uh, and last week um, we looked at the end of chapter 2. And because there was a weekend away, I think two weeks ago for you guys, uh, Southwest's and Cities uh, preaching uh, map uh, is not in sync. And so today I'm supposed to be preaching on the entirety of Ephesians chapter 3, but I'm going to focus on uh, the last seven verses from 14 uh, to seven, eight verses from 14 to 21. And I want us to remember that Ephesians basically has two parts. Uh, chapters 1 to 3 and chapters 4 to 6. And this is the end of the first part of the book of Ephesians. And the first part of the book of Ephesians has long, complicated sentences, run-on sentences. Paul would not have gotten a good grade in English uh, because of just the, the, the way that he writes here. Um, and it is really uh, imperatives. Now, an imperative, if, uh, sorry, rather indicative. An indicative is something that has already been done. And so 1 to 3 is full of indicatives, full of uh, what Christ has done, what God has done, what the Spirit is doing, while the latter part of uh, the book, chapters 4 to 6, is full of imperatives. That's going to, Paul's going to make a pivot there and talk to us about what we should be doing in response to what God has done. And so this is the end of the first part. And Paul is going to end here in chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, on a high note with, with praise. And next week, and well, rather next week is going to be uh, a kingdom come, but the following weeks we'll be talking more about what our response should be. This has got to be one of my favorite passages, and I can't tell you even now when I'm, I'm about to how excited I am uh, to show you what the Lord has been teaching me this week. So towards that end, let me pray, and then we'll get right into the word. Father, we thank you again for your goodness to us. Uh, we thank you that uh, the truest thing in the universe is that you are good, that you are love, and that you move toward us in love. And I pray, Lord, for the folks here who, who don't feel that, who don't know that, uh, I pray that you would draw them near. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work in this space today. May you use my imperfect words to do your perfect ministry. Uh, convict, comfort, bring to life out of death this day, we pray. Help me to forget the things that are not going to be helpful for your people today and help me to remember the things that will be. And it's in all these things that we pray. In your name, amen. Amen. Last week I was sitting down with a friend over coffee and we were talking about what some of our favorite movies were. Last week I think I talked to you about Interstellar. And uh, his favorite movie, or one of his favorite movies, is a 2007 movie called Into the Wild. Now Into the Wild is a story where a young Christopher McCandless, uh, having just graduated from university, he's about to enter into Harvard Law he doesn't want to take that traditional route, uh, road that his wealthy family is trying to get him on. 
So he's set to go to Harvard Law, but he leaves everything behind. Chris leaves everything behind. I mean, he burns up his social security card. He burns up his identification. He gives away, I think he had $24,000 in savings. He gave it all away to charity. He gives everything up. And by the way, this is a true story. His desire is to leave everything behind. Narratives of success. False views of happiness, responsibility, and as the title would have it, he wants to go into the wild. And in the final analysis, what Chris is looking for is adventure and happiness. And so he sets out. I think it's from Alabama, and it takes about 20 months for him to get from Alabama, hitchhike, from Alabama all the way to Alaska. And all throughout the movie, all throughout that journey, he's meeting a lot of interesting characters along the way. And he finally gets there through a series of beautiful and horrible experiences. But he ends up dying at the age of 24 due to starvation and possibly berry poisoning. What a way to go. And one of the very last things, well, one of the things we think he, like the very last thing we think he wrote, was, was this, was haunting line. And he wrote this in his journal. He said this, that happiness is only real when shared. And that is haunting. Happiness is only real when shared. A young man who's experienced so much of what so many young wandering hearts want to experience, to hit the open road, to go at it alone, to go into the wild as it were, he realized That in the final analysis, happiness is only real when shared. And this kind of statement is surprising in a culture like ours, a a hyper-individualistic culture, which has taught us that if we want to be happy, we actually don't tether ourselves to other people. We actually need to find our happiness apart from people. We need to find our happiness in number one. We need to worry about ourselves. We need to find ourselves. We need to speak our truth. But happiness... We come to find out is not found in isolation from others, but is only real when shared with others. And in the same way, we have so over-individualized our apprenticeship to Jesus that we think it's possible to walk with the master apart from other disciples. And so when we approach a text like this, chapters uh, 3, 14 to 21, if we have this singular you, when when we read this text and we read singular you, I said this last week, I'm going to say this every single week, you're lucky you're not Southwest because they've been hearing this for weeks now. Every single week, I want to emphasize this one point, that every single you that you read, Y-O-U, in the book of Ephesians is always plural. It's always yous. It's always y'all. And we often think that we can experience the love of God in Christ on our own. And that's, in some sense, partly true in the same way that it's true that I can be happy for a time, for a season, for for what, you know, apart from others. But this true, real, lasting happiness happens in community. And what Paul is getting at here is is this this central fact that I want to highlight. It's this, that there there are dimensions of God's love that we cannot experience apart from deep communion with others. That there are dimensions of God's love that we cannot experience. We are shut off from dimensions of God's love if we stay apart from deep communion with others. 
You see, uh, this may make no sense in our even our Christian hyper-individualistic culture because we often will elevate quiet times over public gatherings. And so the litmus test of our discipleship, of our spirituality, is just me and Jesus alone. And I'm not trying to go the other way and say that that's not important. Absolutely that is important to get away and be alone with the master. But when we implicitly place different forms of engagement with Jesus in some kind of hierarchy of holiness. We're missing something. Yes, it's true that you and me personally have been redeemed and called, regenerated, but we are called and redeemed and regenerated as part of a community. And so praying with others is just as important as praying by ourselves for our spiritual formation because the reality is we cannot appropriate the love of God on our own. We just, we can't. There are dimensions of God's love that we cannot experience apart from the deep communion with others. And we're going to walk through this passage here in three phases. The first one is that Paul is praying that we would be strengthened with power. That's the first one. Uh, the second one is that we would, he, we would do that. We would be strengthened with power to know the love of Christ. And finally, that we would do all these things for the glory of God. So read with me here verse 14, chapter 3. Let's go. For this very reason, for this very reason, I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And Paul picks up here in verse 14 exactly the same way that he picks up in verse 1, for this very reason. Which means that whatever is coming up next is intricately connected to what we were just talking about in the previous passage. And we have to ask, and so for what reason? And it's namely this. Paul understands this reality, that the new people of God are made up of a diverse group of people, of Jew and Gentile. And it's only because of the good news of Jesus that he tore down the wall of hostility that this can be so. People who once hated each other. I'm not talking about people who annoy you, right? Like there's, there's people, listen, let's just be real. There's people in this room right now that annoy you. I'm not talking about just those little pet peeves and those little personality idiosyncrasies that we don't like about people. No, these are people who hated each other. There was a deep hostility. And now they're calling each other sister and brother. Knowing that this other person, this other, is just as beloved as God, of God as they are. And we learned, well, Southwest learned, you're about to learn now. What we, what we taught last week, and it's this, that the sheer existence, the sheer existence of the church, Paul teaches in chapters 3, 1 to 13, the sheer existence of the church, even in its weakness, is a sign, is a sermon, proclaiming the victory of God over the powers. The church is a sign of hope in and for the world, and it's because of this reality now that Paul is praying. Paul's not idealistic. He's a, he's a hopeful, I like to think of him as a hopeful realist. And so he knows. He knows the problems that can and do and have arisen in his ministry as he's planted, quote, unquote, mixed churches with Jew and Gentile. You would remember that Paul tasted and is tasting the fruit as he is in prison now of his ministry. 
You would remember in the book of Galatians when Paul had to rebuke Peter for shunning Gentiles, for not eating with them because there were some prominent Jews who had come from Jerusalem. And it's for this very reason. He understands the tension. He understands the struggle. And he reminds them here, these readers, that this father is not just the father of the Jewish people. It's not just Abraham's father. But every nation, every family, every lineage finds its source and lineage in the father of Jesus. And peep this, right? It's not even just the, uh, uh, the, the nations or families of earth. This is what he says. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, he's not just saying that for, for no reason. There, there, there's, there's something real there, that there is this unseen realm here that, that, so, that seeps through Paul's theology. Throughout Scripture, you see God ruling in heaven with a heavenly council, with created beings that he administers his rule through. And God rules in the heavens through created beings. God rules in, on earth through created beings. And one, one day, I hope, we're going to teach a whole sermon series on this. I, I, I want to just segue there, but, but, but I need to come back. Uh, this is the question. This is the question. I'll, I'll get out of hand because the timer's off. I'm, I'm going wild. Uh, this is the question. What exactly is Paul praying for? And he's praying for this, that according to the riches of his glory, right? And this word glory, glory is, is, is the, the visible brightness, the visible manifestation of God's goodness that surrounds him. And he prays that this visible manifestation of goodness that surrounds God, that according to the riches of that, that he may grant to use to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And what is this inner being? Paul is talking about the core of who you are as a human being, as someone who's made in the image of God. He's not uh, just talking about uh, uh, the heart or, or, or the, the emotions. He's talking about the whole person. And it's the Spirit of God that brings transformation about. And the question for me, the question about the question, I'm always asking questions. What's the question behind the question? Is Well, let's say God grants this prayer. That, that we're strengthened. What, what for? What's, what's the purpose of, of that? And it's simply this, to know the love of Christ. Verse 17. So that, so that, so this is the reason why I'm praying this. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and what is the length and what is the height and what is the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Man, what is Paul getting at here? This is so rich. What does it mean? What does it mean for someone to dwell in someone else? Well, that word dwell there is related to the word that we get house from, oikos. And so uh, Paul is saying, like, Jesus is going to make his home in you. And, and not, just, not just in your heart, like the way we Westerns think about heart. It's not that Paul wants our emotions or our feelings to be conformed to Jesus only. 
No, for Paul, the heart was the very center of consciousness, of will, of desire, of direction, of the mind, of emotions. And that's why Proverbs 4.23 reminds us to do what? Above all things, what? Guard our what? Our hearts. For everything we do flows from it. Everything we do flows from the heart. And it's at this very center, this, this heart, this place where your whole life flows out of your decisions, your choices, your desires, your will, your thinking. Out of this center, Paul is saying that we need strength to allow Jesus to pitch his tent there, to move in there. We need divine help and power because it's not comfortable to let Jesus there. It's not comfortable. Like the, the, you know, when we think about Jesus coming into our hearts, we think about this kind of Jesus, right? Like glowing, maybe knocking on the door gently, begging you to let him in. Right? It's not comfortable to let Jesus move in. C.S. Lewis, I love the way he puts this. He says this in Mere Christianity. He says, imagine yourself a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. Now, at first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a little decent cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Renos hurt. You're always over budget and under time. But this is exactly what it means for Christ to dwell in our hearts. He's making our lives, the place out of which we live our lives, his abode, his home, the place where he kicks up his feet and rests. And Paul continues, that you being rooted and grounded in love, this is your situation now. There are a lot of things that will tell you what your circumstances are. But if you have the apocalypse, if we can open our eyes and un this unveiling of who Jesus is and who we are in him, if we have that apocalypse, if we see him for who he is, then the truest thing about you is that right now you are rooted and grounded in love. That yous may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love. He can't even finish that sentence. He's so, Paul's just so emotionally charged. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Oh man, this has got to be one of my favorite passages in all of Paul's letters. And when we think about power, what we need power for, what's, what's power for? When you think about power, well, power is for doing, right? Power is for moving refrigerators and lifting sofas. Power is for, yet again, changing another nappy. Power is to put sin to death. We need power to do something. 
And I'm always surprised when I read this text because I'm expecting Paul to say something else. I'm ready for Paul at least to say, may God grant you the power to kill sin. May God grant you the power to love him more, to see him as he is, to see how beautiful he is. May you have the power to respond to Jesus. That's not what he prays, though. All that is true and good. But he prays that we would have power to understand, to comprehend the love God has for us. It's no natural thing to understand in increasing measure how much God truly loves us. Because it's a knowing, Paul says, that surpasses knowing. It's a knowledge that's greater than knowledge. It is a a lived knowledge. It is an experienced knowledge. It's sapiential. Sapience is this. I love the way Ellen Cherry says it. She says, sapience, sapience includes information about God, but emphasizes attachment to that knowledge. Sapience is is engaged knowledge that emotionally connects the knower to the known. But the power in this text oftentimes is lost on us when we don't understand that he's speaking to we and not just me. Because there is an engaged knowledge of the love of Christ that cannot be experienced alone. The entire thrust and point of this entire letter is for us to comprehend and respond to Christ's gracious act of bringing Jew and Gentile together in his own body. And so we are to understand the love of Christ not just toward me, but toward we. And there are aspects, there are dimensions, depths of Christ's love that you will never experience apart from deep communion with others, particularly those who are different from you. There are ways that you can only see and experience God through others. We don't get less of God by being in community and sharing that experience of love. We actually get more. We live with this a scarcity mindset where there is one pie, and if I get a piece of the pie, that necessarily means that you can't. But in the kingdom of God, this is not the way it works. I know I've already quoted C.S. Lewis, but man, he gets this. He lost a friend of his, Charles, and he was thinking about now that Charles is gone, I get to get more of our friendship circle. Like I get to get more of the others now that, that Charles isn't here. And he said this, In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friends can fully bring out. By myself, I'm not large enough to call out the whole person into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. In this, friendship exhibits, I love this, a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increases, listen to this, increases the fruition which each of us has of God. For every soul, seeing him in her own way, doubtless, communicates that unique vision to all the rest. I love that. For every soul, seeing Jesus in her own way, doubtless communicates that unique vision to all of us. And that's why Revelation 5 is so beautiful. That there's every tongue, 
every nation, every people group, singing around the throne room of God. And that's why there, there, there are ways that, that, that I can only experience God's love through a particular culture that I can't through another. And that's why we need each other, because there are dimensions of God's love that we cannot experience apart from deep communion with others. If we're going to understand God's love towards us, then we need each other to reflect, to refract, refract that love in your own unique way to one another. And in so doing, we are filled with the fullness of God. I love, what, what does that mean? Now, Paul exactly is not being too complex here. He's praying that we would have the power in the spirit, by the Spirit so that we would be able to comprehend God's love for us, not just in the mind, but in the heart, in the body. And if we're cut off from others, we're cut off from dimensions of God's love. And when that happens, when, when, when we actually get together, when we love people who are in Christ with us, especially if they're different from us, we stand shoulder to shoulder with one another. When we don't count gender or socioeconomic status, whether we are married or single, our ethnicity, the color of our skin, what postcodes we inhabit, when we don't count any of those things as the thing that binds us, we are full of God. And what does it mean to be full of anything? I mean, when you say, when you say oh, that person is full of, you know, it. We're taping. What do we mean by that? You know, when we say that person is full of it. Well, it means that you saw something or you heard something in their character, in their words, that spilled out of them. And now, because of what you see outside, their words or their actions, you, you must think, well, they're so full of it that it, it's coming, seeping out. And imagine if the rumors about us was, man, those people are so full of God. Instead of full of hypocrisy or judgmentalism or self-righteousness. To be full of God means to reflect his heart, to reflect his will, to reflect his desire for holiness and goodness and beauty. And that's why deep spiritual formation is so necessary for the missional task, because the defining marker for the disciple is what? What is the defining marker of the disciple? How will they know, Jesus asked, that you are my disciples? Your theological prowess, right? Your, your doctrinal statements, your edgy aesthetic, right? What you know or, or who you know. Ah, I got it, I got it, I got it. It's what you stand against. That's how they'll know that Christ sent you. It's, it, it's maybe your political affiliations. How will they know? Love, right? Love, love, love. I wrote it here. Like love. Love, 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 love. They will know you by the love that you have for one another. Love will be the measure. But to access this love, to be transformed by this love, we need one another. We need one another refracting the love and the light of Christ in their own particular ways, in our own particular unique ways for the whole community. There are dimensions of God's love that are only accessible through each one of you. The way that you interact with the Spirit that maybe I don't. The way that you pray to the Father in a way that maybe I don't. The way that you manage to stay tethered to Jesus through hardships in ways that I haven't. 
the ways that you serve the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed and the widows and the orphans, your heart for justice, your heart for truth, your heart for beauty, your heart for knowledge, your heart for wisdom, your heart for whatever it is that reflects God's love in its own particular way. That is what I need to experience the varying dimensions of God's love for me in Christ. And this is how the love of Christ moves from being 3D or rather 2D to 3D. Or 4D. Or if you've seen Interstellar, I don't know, 5D. We need strength for Christ to dwell in our hearts. We need strength to be rooted and grounded in love. We need strength to understand the dimensions of God's love. We need strength to know beyond knowing. A knowledge beyond knowledge. The love of Christ. All this is so that we would be full Filled with the fullness of God. But even that is not the ultimate goal. That's the penultimate goal. Penultimate goal is the goal before the goal. And this is the ultimate goal. Follow with me in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we have asked, than, than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You know, to be, full with the full, to be filled with the fullness of God is a beautiful and true and worthy thing. But there is a deeper ground still. That God would be glorified. That is the chief end of humanity. That God would be glorified. And it's interesting that the God who says, I will share my glory with no one, glorifies us. But our glory is not a self-generating glory. You would remember what happened to Moses when he went up to Mount Sinai and he came back down. He had this glowing face. So much so, I mean, he would have been uh, very comfortable uh, during COVID times, because he had to wear a veil over his face as well. Like, he had to wear a mask so that others wouldn't, you know, like, wouldn't get distracted or, or maybe tempted to worship him. But this glory that Moses had on his face was derivative. It came from, it rubbed off uh, uh, from Yahweh, from God, onto him. And it's this glory of God, this visible manifestation of God's goodness is not just light, but it is this room. It is a people who are full of him. It is a people who are full of his goodness, his greatness, his otherness, his holiness, that God dwells in this space. This Shekinah glory that rubbed off on Moses and all of our lives now are set to the tune of the glory of God. Because this is the final analysis, that we live our lives in such a way that makes God look glorious as he is because the greatest gift the greatest thing that you can offer the world are your transformed lives that reflect his love for the world that is the greatest thing you can ever give to this world and that's why we need each other to access the dimensions of his love we cannot do this alone we are cut off because there are dimensions of God's love that we can't experience apart from deep communion with others. And all this, we do this, all this, so that God would be 
glorified. Because this is the thing here, right? The world is full of chaos. I mean, we grieve. We've all seen what is happening in Palestine, in the Middle East. We, 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 we grieve because of the chaos in the world, but we also grieve over the way that brokenness and sin and the powers have distorted our own lives. Through and through, even when we taste beauty and satisfaction, it's fleeting. And it's only as you put your embodied trust, your, your faith in the finished work of Jesus that we can now partner with God. This is the call for you today. To partner with God in pushing back the chaos, the darkness in your own life and in the world. And so if you're sick and tired of the state of your own life, the state of the world, and you don't call yourself a follower of Jesus here today, I invite you into a journey of a lifetime. A journey that begins with being accepted, not one where you have to anxiously work to be accepted. A journey that begins with being the beloved, not a journey where you have to work to be loved. A journey that begins in love, not one where you have to continually reimagine yourself and posture yourself in order to be loved. And you can begin that today if you feel the Lord tugging on you to, to drawing you to his beauty. I pray that you would... Pray and, and, and seek someone here. Seek the person who you came with, a pastor here, someone who you trust, and tell them, I, I want to become an apprentice of Jesus. And if you're already an apprentice of Jesus, what is this going to look like for us, for you, to lean into this truth, to lean into the truth that there are ways that we can't experience God's love for us apart from the church, apart from deep communion with others. How can we show up more meaningfully? How can we see this time together not as just a time to receive, but a time to give? How can we be present to one another throughout our week? How can we continually put before each other this truth that we are far better together? That in order to experience the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love that surpasses knowledge, we need to be in deep communion with one another. Is there anything more beautiful and more meaningful than that? That's what I'm calling you to today. As the band comes up, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your holiness, your otherness. We thank you that you, in fact, are good. And we thank you for this letter to the Ephesians. We thank you that Paul would, would write such things, that Holy Spirit, you uh, uh, prompted Paul to write such deep and beautiful truths that we need each other to experience the dimensions of God's love, the, the, the breadth and the height and the length and the depth. May we not walk out of here the same. Particularly, though, uh, Lord, I, I pray for those who uh, are, are wandering, who, who are questioning. I pray that you would bring them home. Holy Spirit, this is not our work to do, but it is yours. And so for all these things, we love you, Jesus. We praise you, Jesus. We worship you, Jesus. We cannot wait to see you face to face, Jesus. And until that day, we will continue leaning into this truth that you are good, that you are for us, that you love us. And, that, and I pray now that we would all have the power to comprehend that love for us now in Christ.
And it's in that name that we pray. Amen and amen.